You're listening to NCG Top 100s, a National Club Golfer podcast. Hello everyone, welcome again to the NCG Top 100s podcast. In each episode, we try and take you into a virtual clubhouse and get the inside stories about the courses that feature in the ranking lists you can see on our website at nationalclubgolfer.com. After flying solo last week, I am once again joined by the man ultimately responsible for putting these lists together, NCG Top 100s Chairman Dan Murphy. Welcome, Dan. Thank you, Steve, and uh, great to be back. This year, we are reinvigorating our list of England's best courses and talking to those clubs both riding high in those lists and looking to get involved. Today, we are going to a club that is so timeless that when you consider the quintessential image of English golf, this has to be one of the courses you must consider. Whether it is the stunning Heathland, the ingenious routing and exceptional strategy, or in a more primal sense, it's brutal bunkering, the Hotchkin at Woodall Spa is world-renowned, and rightly so. Under the stewardship of today's special guest, at risk at times to probably his health and sanity, this layout was given a wonderful renovation by the brilliant Tom Doak. A renowned author whose books on the likes of Muirfield, Royal County Down, and of course, the Hotchkin, have set the standard for studies of the architecture and history of layouts. We are delighted to be joined by Woodall Spa General Manager Richard Latham. Welcome, Richard. Thank you very much. Big introduction. I hope I can live up to it. Thank you. <laughs> now, after all that positive PR, um, I'm just going to drop this on you. So hopefully I've butted you up enough for what's to come. At the end of these podcasts, we ask all our guests to name their top three English golf courses. So please get ready for that one. Um, but just to begin, if you could tell me, Richard, what it is about the Hotchkin that stirs up such strong feelings in golfers, because there really is nothing quite like it, is there? Well, I don't believe there is. I'm very biased. Every time I talk about Woodall Spa, I like to talk very positively about it. But what I can say, Woodall is what I call a classic English Heathland course. It's it's Heathland golf at its best. It, it's in a, a fairly raw state. We like to keep it in a very uh, rustic manner. It's a, it's a particular uh, intention of ours that we have bunkers that aren't neatly edged, they're torn edges. It's to keep that very rustic look going. Um, but I think Woodall Spa has always been very famous for its bunkers. There's no question about that in my view. It's about sand. There's lots of it. Uh, we've uh, recently renovated the course and uh, we've increased the number of bunkers going back to how it used to play in the first place. And I do think that right from the outset, even in those very early days, uh, the course always had uh, uh, many bunkers and the, the expanse of sand you can see from the tee often gives the golfer um, a bit of a fear and dread, but also it's very good looking too. It's, uh, it's Heathland golf at its best. I guess it was something like five years ago now. Um, so, so there you are, um, custodian of one of the very finest inland courses um, uh, in, in this country. And you looked at it and you decided that um, the, it was time to do some work on it. Yeah. Um, incredibly brave thing to do. 
So before we get into what happened, uh, just can you just remember when you when you go back five years, what what did you see when you when you walked around the course in those days, and what was it that you wanted to address? I think when you get a, a to a stage with any golf course where trees grow self-sown, they're not planted, and and it starts to do two things: one, alter the characteristics, in our case, heathland characteristics, and two, golfers then have to start playing around trees that weren't there in the first place. My view on that is, well, you're losing the architectural principles that were originally laid out. So uh, our intention was, when we looked at it, and I stood on the first tee, and just looked down on that first hole, and particularly coming back up the 18th, which runs parallel to it, we didn't see any sand. We just saw trees. We saw a parkland course coming. We saw heather that used to be there was no longer there. It was quite a uh, a real sort of, you get to that point when you think, we have to do something about this. We can't leave this as it is because actually the, the hot skin was losing its own, very own special character. So we the first thing we did was to say, right, let's uh, get back to where, Heathland Golf should be. That was the driving force. It really was. I know that you uh, drove this project personally. Um, so it's probably worth just touching on the fact that uh, Woodall Spire is a proprietary club and that does make a difference, doesn't it? Can, can you just explain to, uh, to listeners uh, how the structure works and why that, why that made it, I guess, a little bit easier than it perhaps would have done uh, where Woodall Spire in the position of, you know, a, a, a Sunningdale or a Swindley Forest or, or wherever it may be? Yeah. Uh, well, in a private members club, um, that's a, a golf club that's owned by its members who elect a committee to run it, it to run itself. And I think, uh, therefore, you have to do uh, get consensus among the members as to what they believe is right for their golf course. They all have a right to have a say. And the committee um, has to make a decision on uh, the general views of the members as to what should happen. And I think um, that can be a slow process. There's nothing wrong with it being a slow process. It's certainly something you don't want to rush into. Um, but as you say, Woodall Spa is a proprietary uh, course. It's owned by England Golf. Um, and the, uh, the the running and the operations of it is left. is to put to one side to an operating company. And when you have a setup that is not owned by members as such, it's a, a business, it's proprietary run, um, it's then up to the owners to decide what is the best thing for their business and what is the best thing for their assets. And in this case, what we believe was the best for our golf course was to, um, you know, improve it and get it back to how it was. The decision-making process is different because therefore mm -hmm. you don't necessarily have to go to the members. You do involve the members. I was very, um, very keen to involve the members and inform them over what we were doing and they were very interested. Um, but at the end of the day, the owner has the right to say what happens to its, um, to its own business and, it, and its own asset. Just before we get into um, what you did and what's happened since, how how many people were were were, were approaching you and saying, well, "What are you doing? There's a fantastic golf course here. Why, why why do you feel that it needs to be to to be dug up in such a way? Why can't you just leave it as it is?" 
Uh, well, you're absolutely right. I did get asked that question a few times. Um, I think I was looking at it from an architectural point of view. I was looking at it from a purist point of view. Um, you mentioned earlier, you have to be brave. We really did have to be very brave. And you do take on, you know, you're looking effectively, you're looking at a very well-known golf course that the country loves. You have to be very sure of your own convictions to want to do that. But we knew it wasn't as good as it could be, should be. It really ne needed some attention. And there came a time, you see, trees are a very emotive subject. Well, interestingly, most of the Hodgkin courses are triple SI, um, a site of special scientific interest. And, and the governors of triple SIs are natural England and natural England were extremely concerned about this very valuable piece of heathland we've got and trees are not helpful in a triple SI um, so there were many pressures being put on us to fix that problem so not just um, you know from a golfing perspective mm. from a, us trying to make the golf course great again it was also let's get the heathland back to how it should be and so there was enormous pressure to do something, but the question was how to do it. Um, the process was a big thing and some big decisions to be made, which is what we did. And um, here we are now. Well, happily, uh, Richard, you knew a man. Um, uh, <laughs> and so um, next thing we know, um, Tom Doak um, arrives on the scene. Um, absolutely thrilling for I think for any um, golf course purist uh, you know just see arguably the you know, the leading practitioner um, of, of the current age arriving at one of our greatest courses um, now you would have had an idea which way um, Tom Doak uh, as we were talking about here would have wanted to go but clearly he had di some different ideas um, and no doubt took it in different directions. So can you just explain, well, first of all, how it came to be Tom Doak doing the work and then yeah. your experience of working with it? Yeah, well, um, we, we, we had a, a very fair, open, tender process. We approached four uh, different architects uh, to consider whether they wanted to do the job and they, they each presented their own ideas. Um, what attracted us to Tom was the fact that I always feel that um, when he does work on a golf course, it's very specific to that golf course. You see a lot of, um, uh, you know, you, you've heard the expression uh, Pete Dye golf course or Donald Ross golf course. And, you know, you look at all these golf courses around and the Nicklaus golf course, you know, they've all got traits and, uh, and their similarities. Whereas I feel, and this is my personal opinion, that when Tom Doak, uh, looks at the course, whether it's a new build or whether it's a restoration work, I believe he um, really, really does do what is right for that club. And there is no mark left on it that says, oh, that's a Tom Doak course. Now, there'll be people out there, I'm sure, may, may disagree with me on that one, but I'm fairly certain on all the courses and the work he's done, it seems quite different to me. Now, when you start looking at restorations, restoration or renovation or whatever the word is, it's a big ask. It's a big ask for anyone to get that right. And it's a very big ask to do um, changes to some holes and they don't look out of character with the others. And of course, in what happened at Woodall, we did all 18 holes. So that was a good thing. But 
he spent so long looking at the history and, and obviously with my own uh, knowledge and, and background in the history of Woodall Spa, um, it, it was great to be able to sit down and look at all this stuff and see what people did before, what made the golf course great, and then to make it great again. And, and it wasn't um, a, a difficult thing. It was when you start looking at it all, you can soon, there was a pattern emerging. And so um, I, I don't know, I think Tom was very happy with his work. He's gonna come back soon, just have a, a, a look uh, when he passes through. But what I can say is when we look back at those old photographs and what we have now and with the new T positions and, and one thing another, it truly is now en encapsulates those thoughts from before, and I, and I that is a, a very good thing. Now the game moves on, and the game is played quite differently to when the course was first first built. But there were some fundamental um, architectural principles that we were losing, which are now back out there. And in my um, humble opinion, uh, Tom was a man of the job. Uh, I've always been a huge admirer of his work. Uh, a huge amount of his writing, his candidness. Um, you asked me the second part of the question, I think you asked was, what was he like to work for? Well, Tom is his own man. He, he knows um, how he wants to do it. Um, it was nothing but an absolute pleasure. And I learned so much from the experience. And it was done in a way that, um, you know, he oversaw the project, he produces a plan, he oversaw the project work, um, but he was very, one thing was so important for Woodall Spa was the shaping. You have to have a good shaper when you get into um, to, to this work. And he uh, has his own team that he's worked with for many years, who one understands him, they're golf course architects in their own right, um, they're very knowledgeable people. And they knew exactly Tom only has to look a certain way and they know what he's thinking you know and that for us was such an important thing um and of course as you well know we then um the, his team came in they did the shaping we then put the golf course back ourselves we didn't employ outside contractors um when I look back maybe we should have done that. I wore out our team of greenkeepers um in ways that I didn't I didn't really quite expect it to be um, as hard as it was to to put back, but we did it, and um, it was a, an incredibly successful project. The one thing of having um, working with someone like Tom, he do, he writes a plan. Of course, he does, like everyone else. But that plan will change because when you go out to do something, you you look, and it doesn't sit quite right so he wants to go back and alter it and, and in one case um, there was one bunker out there which he worked he had rebuilt three times and, and that was I think the real success of this project was until he was happy that they looked right and it fitted in which comes back down to shaping the value of shaping but more importantly um, you have to give these guys in any project like this you want to give them some um, leeway to alter things when they don't look right. Well, I, I hope you um, you won't mind me telling a, a short story from one of my visits um, to Woodall Spa on, uh, <laughs> when, when Tom was at Evans. You know what I'm going to say here, don't you? That, and, uh, and and I, I was there to interview um, Tom and he'd gone out um, that morning to go uh, and supervise the works. Uh, we And we were chatting over a coffee 
uh, in your office and suddenly there was a knock on the door and it was uh, uh, Tom said can I have a word Richard um, and then you came in a minute later and if you don't mind me saying a little paler than when you'd um, when you'd left the room <laughs> and of course uh, of course Tom, Tom had been out I think it was on the second and he decided that he didn't he'd actually had a, a new thought on the way that he wanted to do the bunkering and he was just getting your permission to say is it okay with uh, if we do it like this now Richard and and we you know I was standing there thinking we were, we were looking at each other thinking wow golf history has just changed in that moment uh, where the greatest architect of his generation has just decided he wants to do this hole in a slightly different way. You've been put on the spot. You, you said to me, how could I possibly say anything other than, yes, Mr. Doped, go and do it. Um, <laughs> and, and, and no doubt in the end he was right. And of course, we can sit here now and say it was fine. But it just shows, I think, that in the moment, um, it's quite stressful, isn't it, at times? Well, it was certainly very stressful. In fact, uh, there was one moment... Um, it was a three-year project and it was after the second phase when uh, I did have a few dark moments in my office, particularly when the weather went against us in a very, very bad way. It certainly at that point, um, th there were some moments when I uh, really uh, wasn't too sure what we were, <laughs> where, how this was all going to mm. end up. But uh, no, it was. And, the, the, the you know, I was given... Um, uh, leeway to get on and, and do what we believe was right. When you looked at Tom's plan and his work and his recommendations, they were in line with everything we wanted, everything that England Golf wanted. Um, it was exactly what uh, we felt was right. So this is where you have to be brave. It doesn't matter whether it's uh, a proprietary club, a private members club, it doesn't matter what the setup is you have to be brave when you decide you're going to do it you have to see it through you and really commit to it and there are moments in any project and particularly one as big as ours where you will have those moments when you um feel um what's the expression very lonely i think is one way of putting it and you know that you're the guy who's um really um going to be held accountable for it if it goes wrong and that could be in any setup and that my um, strong advice to any club that wants to do this sort of thing, um, just be brave, be clear, do your, uh, the proprietary work, set it up, make sure that you understand um, the, the reasons why you're doing it for the right reasons, get everybody on board and then go absolute hell for leather to get it done. Um, and, and as it goes along the way, if things don't go quite right, you have to accept that. Um, and you also do sometimes, and particularly working with Tom, you know, you, you do have to change your, your thinking a little bit. But at the end of the day, when I look back now, I can safely say, I think 99.9% uh, .9 of everything we did was on the money. And it was absolutely right for the course. There's always going to be the odd tweak. There's one we're looking at now, which... Did we get that right? Um, and we will fix that. But, you know, we've got for the next 25 years, we've got a plan. We know what uh, we must do. We're far more mindful now of uh, how quickly um, trees seed and the saplings that come up. You know, you, you really do have to be very mindful of keeping on top of that because you can turn your back. And 20 years down the line, you're right back to where you were. So careful management along the way um, will get us to where we want to be. We've been talking about the project on a general basis. I just wonder if, um, if you could describe um, perhaps one hole or one feature that 
that that Tom Doak has changed that um, in your view has you know has greatly elevated um, that hall just so that listeners can understand the kind of things he's been doing is it possible to pick uh, you know a single example just as, as an illustration that's a challenging question Dan I always <laughs> know you're going to give me one somewhere down the line <laughs> so um, well we did all 18 holes and you want me to pick one out well there's one May I pick two out? Can I pick yes. two? Yes. Okay. Thank you. If there's time. Um, I think the first one would be, I think the first one would be the seventh hole. Um, and I'll just describe that. It's a dog leg par four, uh, dog legs to the right. The, the, off the championship tee, it's 470 yards. The forward tees, it's 440. It's a good hole. And um it was from all the way down the right hand side from tee to green with trees and gorse so anything right off the tee's lost ball it was it was really packed and we stood on that tee and he said richard i want you to clear fell that from here to the green now certainly natural england wanted us to clear fell it and i said what and he said well you're a reasonable golfer he said how do you play this hole now and i said well you hit it down the left hand side it's exactly this one shot he said well the most important thing is is you give golfer options if you give golfer options it confuses them and i said uh well so i don't want to get accused of making things too easy here that wouldn't be good so um I, and i was sort of umming and ahhing a bit he said just do it do it and you know what we did do it uh, i wasn't convinced at the time on that one as soon as we did it it started to look a bit more like walton heath it was open you could see all the mounding it was beautiful we opened up old bunkers it was back out of the course used to play Got big tick in the box from Natural England. And um, the next tournament to be played there was the third, uh, was the Brabazon Trophy. So we had some of the best amateurs in Europe playing in that. And uh, I happened to go out to that seventh hole. And uh, two out of every three ball was struggling to find the ball on the right where we cleared it all out. And they couldn't get to come to grips with it. They couldn't come to grips with how much of the corners to cut off. And it turned out to be the second hardest hole of the week in the tournament. So, hey, ever want a proof of, um, you know, good sound architectural principles? There, there it was right there. And by doing that, that hole has actually played harder than it would have been if it left all of that. And then you just play your stock shot down the left hand side. So there you go. That's the first one. The second one I'd say yeah. was the 13th. The 13th hole, um, we moved the fairway. 25 yards to the right uh, we took out some bunkering um, and we play, made that whole play it was in, as it was originally intended to be and that was a massive improvement to the course how, how does the fairway move uh, how does it move <laughs> it means you have to cut down some trees and put it in where it was it where it used to be <laughs> no, I meant in the first place how, how could it possibly you know, I've seen that hole how could that that fairway have moved over the years it seems um, seems you wouldn't believe it was possible would you yeah you wouldn't believe it was possible but you know it some um there were some bunkers added in some time ago and they were added in on the right hand side of the hole and there were bunkers on the left, so because of where they were put, it made people to start to play more to the left. And then the the, the ground beyond the bunkers suddenly, um, they had saplings growing up, they grew into trees. And next thing you know, 60 years go by, and um, you've got a different, you've got a hole that was never intended to be played like that. And interestingly, when he said, we need to move this over here, 
he took me into the middle of those trees and he said, look down there, what do you see? And I said, well, I see the green. He said, that's the perfect line into the hole. And the bunkers that were put 30, 40 yards short of the green, which were actually meant to be um, bunkers that if you missed a bit to the left, you know, um, you go in them if you were short and left. Whereas now they're actually, uh, before, sorry, on the old hole, you have to fly those bunkers. Now you can actually come in from the right and uh, effectively uh, miss the bunkers. So it goes to show that it's good foresight on behalf of the architect. For those who haven't been lucky enough to play at Woodall Spa and perhaps aren't familiar with the the geography, um, just explain um, how a, um, a trip to Lincolnshire should work and maybe could you suggest the good ways of doing it, you know, where you might team it up with, where else you might visit, um, and you know, wh wh when's the best time to come and see Woodall Spa? Well, we always like to think that the course tends to be, get, uh, by by June time, the course is looking at its best in, in most years. <laughs> Some years we have very bad springs as we've had. It's always quite a challenge to get things to grow as you want them to be. But uh, I always think that um, June, July, August, September, October, it's, a, it's a, a fantastic time to come, particularly when the heather comes out. It looks a million dollars. It's fantastic. Two types of heather, they flower. At different times so it's a sort of uh, two or three months you get a lovely covering it looks great um i think that it is on sand so we're very uh fortunate to um have a very dry course so you can come all the year round and funnily enough um coming all the year round is a is a, a really good thing i think um you will never be disappointed with uh, getting your feet wet playing around the Hodgkin course because in places the sand is 20 feet deep and it, um, which allows us to have very deep bunkers and very few drainage problems. It's uh, particularly down one side of the course it's very deep in sand, another side it gets the sand comes close to the surface so not quite, quite so um, dry. But in terms of coming to Lincolnshire um, always remember to leave, you, leave yourself a bit of extra time getting from the A1 to Woodall Spa. We all know, uh, everybody thinks it looks five minutes on the map. It isn't. It's a good 45 minutes to an hour, depending which tractor you get behind. Um, but there are some great courses around here to play. Um, obviously, a bit of Lynx Golf at Seacroft. We like um, uh, Seacroft is a, is a lovely Lynx course, a short course, really pleasurable to play. Um, and then there's other courses nearby to us that um, are, are great parkland courses. Uh, and of course, there's another there's a course on site as well. So you can you can of course play twice at Woodall, can't you? Is another way of doing it. Uh, yes, of course. That was rather remiss of me to uh, miss our second course out. I did, I did try to sell that up for you. <laughs> Yes, thank you for that. Yeah, um, uh, indeed, the Bracken course, uh, about 20 years old now. It's um, completely different. It's not built on sand, it's on clay. It's uh, a good parkland course, quite American style, very large undulating greens. Great uh, complement to the Hopskin course. So, uh, yeah, very much so. 36 hole package. Most of our visitors, actually, to be fair, do stay over. They um, play one round on each course. So. Can you just describe um, how you've managed to change the first and the 18th? Because I remember looking at that a few years ago and thinking, well, you know, I don't see what how you'd be able to do too much. You know, I think people looked at the opening hole and said, relatively speaking, it's not one of Woodall's strengths. And yet you've managed to do something dramatically different with those two holes, which, again, is obviously a tribute to the designer, isn't it? Can you just briefly explain what you've yeah. done to change those two holes around? 
Absolutely. As I said to you earlier, the two holes run parallel um, uh, to each other. Um, they really had lost the character. Uh, they'd lost, but there was a lot of trees uh, had grown up over the years, but they, 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 were, they were, the trees had altered the way in which the hole was played, particularly the 18. And um, that those two holes now are visually so different and they are so photographic as well, particularly um, with all the new drone footage that's around these days. When we look at those from the air, they are absolutely stunningly beautiful and so different to what was before. And yet, if you pulled out a 1940 aerial photograph of, um, of, of the course, they, are, they look very similar in terms of the fact that they've gone back to the original design. And they are two very good holes now. Um, I don't think that, I think it, that the 18th was, particularly off the championship tee, was beginning to border a little bit on, um, um, well, I don't want to use the word unfair, but they were certainly becoming very challenging holes to play. And uh, not a, a great end to the hole, but the, by just simply opening them up, getting the bunkers to look like they should do, uh, how they should be on a Heathland course, and to uh, remove gorse and put bunk the old bunkers back in. It is just visually stunning, absolutely visually stunning, and a much fairer end to the round. Some fascinating insight there, Richard, and thank you for that. For those listeners who have not been to Woodall Spa, um, they really must go, not only because it rides high in uh, our various ranking lists, but because it's considered one of the world's best, and for a course of that quality, it's actually very reasonably priced as well, uh, particularly in winter. Um, so for those who uh, might be considering a trip, uh, just get in your car and go, really, um, that, that's the main message. As we said at the top of the programme, Richard, we don't let any of our guests escape without asking them about their top three English golf courses. So if I can put you on the spot, um, you can't play at Woodall Spa, you can't play the Hopskin, but if you could pick three courses um, that if I gave you the keys to your car and said off you go, that you would go to, where would they be? Wow. Um, right. I am a fan of Lynx golf. Don't make any secret of that. I think we're very blessed in this country to have some fantastic Lynx courses all the way around in England, Scotland, uh, Ireland. Um, my favourite courses in England, did you say that, Steve? Lynx. Yeah, in England, um, I certainly would go for Burtdale uh, and Hillside. I like both of those, you know, they're on the same neck of the woods, all that coastline. I, I absolutely love playing golf down there. Um, I do like my Heathland course, and so I can't choose Woodall Spa, so I have to say Sunningdale. Um, it's presented very differently to our course, um, but they, they do things a little bit differently there, but it is the most stunning e experience when you play around there. So I've, I've gone for a Heathland course there, and then um, I think my last choice would be uh, probably down um, I think ooh, I think I would probably go for Royal St George's and I'll go to another Lynx course simply because I've got fond memories of playing around there and uh, it's uh, invariably if you play well at a golf course you think it's a very good golf course <laughs> 
Uh, well, that's a stellar selection, Richard. I mean, all the best to you and your team at Woodall Spa um, for the coming year and for the foreseeable. It's been a remarkable transformation. Um, I've been lucky enough to play it a number of times and, and, and uh, I'm always thrilled and always find something new in it. And we just urge people who've not been um, to go and take a look. So thank you for joining us, Richard, on the NCG Top 100s podcast. No, it's all my pleasure. It's been good talking to you.